Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. If you need help with editing, music production, or anything else related to your podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you get your voice heard. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today, we focus on parenting. Many times in past episodes, we talk about advancing technologies, total screen time, social habits, how this will affect our children. It can become really daunting to make sure that we have effective communication with our children and also when it might be time to look outside our family for some additional help. My guest today is Dr. Tara Egan. She's a child and adolescent therapist, a parent coach, and the author of two parenting books and a public speaker. She has a private practice located in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is the host of a parenting podcast called One Day You'll Thank Me. She's been a clinician for nearly 20 years. Her areas of specialty include depression and anxiety in kids, managing technology and social media in the home, and working with families experiencing separation and divorce. Thanks, Tara, so much for joining the show today. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. You are a pretty popular person these days in regards to COVID and the lockdowns and really what could be happening with children and how parents should be coping with everything. And certainly we will hit that. But why don't you start us off by giving your background and what is it that drew you to becoming a child and adolescent therapist? Well, I started off as a school psychologist. So my doctorate's in school psychology and I worked in schools for a long time. And I always worked with kids who struggled with behavioral issues. So after 10 years of that, I ended up wanting a a little bit more of a flexible schedule. And so I moved to private practice and opened my solo practice called Charlotte Parent Coaching, which is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And with my work there, I got to work really closely with parents and focus on whatever their kids' mental health needs were. And most of the clients who call me have heard about me through other folks, other mental health professionals, and are looking for support in their kids' behavior. Maybe there's temper tantrums, a lot of anxiety, oppositional behavior, school failure, sibling rivalry, and or misuse of technology and social media where parents feel like they're in a huge struggle to manage that at home and it's causing stress in the family. So in this time of COVID, absolutely, parents are having to deal with these issues, plus having to deal with the stress of their child's being quarantined, not having access to their friends, having to do online learning, and then parents having to balance their own stress that they're experiencing with their obligations, whether it's their work or stress about finances or just having the concerns about keeping their kids physically safe. Do you find that people come and seek you out at the appropriate time or do you tend to get people coming to you when things have gotten a little bit out of control from your estimation? Well, I think there's a variety. There's some parents who are just very pro-counseling or pro-therapy, and they will see some signs of distress. So they'll have a really good pediatrician or a teacher who will express concerns, and they will be very proactive about it. Other families really are in crisis. They have a lot of disruption in the home. Everyone's feeling really stressed. There might be stress in the marriage, or they might have gone through a divorce and be attempting to co-parent with their ex. And then at that point, they 
have that feeling of things being out of control and then they might reach out. So I have a nice variety, which is great for me because I really enjoy the variety of my work. And you mentioned COVID. So let's just dive right in a little bit further because let's be honest, anybody listening has having some effects from that, whether they are a parent or not. And some of the things you talked about are additional screen time, the learning remotely, uh, I assume socialization. Do you think that it is currently harder on younger kids or older kids with what we're having to go through? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the kid. So I have two children and my daughter's in high school and she is very good at entertaining herself. I mean, she's really quite busy during this quarantine. She she really enjoys baking. She does yoga every day. She ha- plays with the dog. She has little projects going on in her room. Like if you look at her, her stress level seems to be pretty low because she's naturally introverted and great at entertaining herself. And then where's my son, who's very social, he plays a lot of sports, he spends a good portion of his day during in normal times with larger groups of people. So for him to have that be removed so quickly and drastically like that is is a much bigger deal for him. With little kids, they oftentimes don't quite feel the same degree of stress as far as the like the enormity of the situation, you know, that that there is some health risks out there and that there is so much financial instability. I mean, some kids are really able to stay pretty oblivious. And what they think about is, is my is my um, routine being maintained? Am I generally having fun? Am I getting the attention and affection from my parents that I need? And if they feel that, as long as they have those things, it tends to go well. But if they feel like everything's a mystery, like they don't understand why they didn't weren't able to have a birthday party or why they haven't seen grandma in three months. And it's a really hard kind of abstract thing to explain about these germs that are in our world that we have to protect you from. That can be really stressful for kids to just not understand the bigger picture. With older kids, we're seeing that they have that the young person brain where they feel like ah this this illness is out there but it's not going to happen to me and it can be really difficult to not have access to their friend group because that's where they primarily get their entertainment and self-esteem and sense of identity so i'm seeing with my clients that parents are really struggling with having their kids comply with the cdc's recommendations about social distancing so if kids have access to a car they can walk to a nearby shopping center or they want to go meet some friends at the basketball court. Parents just can't be sure that their kids are going to pay attention to those guidelines. And if they're really attentive and they're restricting their kids' movement, there can be a lot of stress between parent and child. Plus, kids are really aware. I mean, some of them are really stressed out by the circumstances of COVID, and that is weighing on them in addition to how it's hampering their, their freedom. That's interesting. I would have actually probably guessed the opposite with younger kids as compared to older kids, just from the standpoint of younger kids' version of interacting, of course, is still playing probably face-to-face as opposed to older kids. I would have thought social media might be able to supplement in some way, but you're saying it's actually the opposite that the younger kids, as long as it's relatively close to what their routine is or that they transition into a new routine, is less impactful. Well, with older kids, even though they do have the advantage of being able to socialize with their other peers online, really to be healthy, they need to have the balance. So in regular times when they go to school and they're on a sports team or they're in a club or they see people at church or wherever it is, those social interactions are supplemented by the social media. But when they only have the social media, then we see an increase in symptoms like depression and anxiety. So on the one hand, as parents, we're like, all right, I'm not going to be restrictive with Snapchat and TikTok and things like that, because this is my child's only chance to socialize. Maybe their only opportunity to talk with their friends is while playing a video game and they're both on Xbox Live or whatever. But it doesn't really replace the in-person connections. And so now that it's so heavily skewed towards online interactions, that can that comes with its own problems. I would imagine 
once we get to less of a lockdown, which depending on where people live, we are getting to that point, it might be a bit of a challenge getting especially the older kids off of the screen time or ratcheting it back down because (laughs) I don't know if it's a parent coping mechanism or what, but I think everybody's at least generally understood there is more screen time. Do you foresee that being a pretty significant challenge for parents of older kids to ratchet back the screen time that may have increased during lockdown? I do. I think for some families, it's going to be a stressful thing because by nature, technology is really compelling. It gives that kids a rush of pleasure. And so it's not just like, oh, this is fun. Okay. But it really is designed to be addictive in nature and to really pull kids in that direction. And so when you're like, okay, let's be done with this now and go back to playing on your baseball team, there'll be times where kids, and and this happens in non-quarantine times too, where kids, if faced with playing on a sports team or playing video games, most of the time, for many kids, the video games are always going to be appealing. During this time when we are more permissive with it, and I'm completely supportive of that. I mean, if you have to choose between your kid being on their iPad and losing your job because you can't attend to it, like, keep your job, provide for your family. You have to do what you need to do. But at the same time, I think it is going to be stressful for some of these kids. There's going to be a period of time where it's almost going to look like grief for them. It's going to feel like a loss for them to have to go back to a regular schedule where they are apart from their games all day long. They don't have as much downtime. And by downtime, it's their version of downtime. Research tells us that when kids are playing video games, their brain really doesn't register it as relaxing time. It's actually very, very stimulating for them. But for kids, if you ask them, what do you like to do in your spare time? What's fun or relaxing for you? Oftentimes, they'll say things like, video games and TikTok and things like that. So I think it's going to be a big change for some families. Other kids will take it in stride because there is a big difference from child to child as far as how attracted they are to technology. And we're going to get into more of the effects of technology and social media here in just a little bit. In But what do you think it is, I guess, about, let's stick with video games, that has that addictive quality? Well, the way kids' brains are designed is they are sort of always seeking that rush, that euphoric feeling. And video games are absolutely created to replicate that feeling the same way you would with with any kind of high. So that's happening despite kids' efforts. It's not like, well, kids, if you just had more self-control, you wouldn't feel this way. They are absolutely created to pull kids in like that. So when kids are put in that situation, they really are going to need a lot of supports from adults to make good choices. I mean, I have every once in a while, I hear parents say, well, I think that she should be able to manage her social media time and she should know when that time is up and get back to doing her homework or whatever. And I'm like, well, your child's 14. I mean, this, their brain is going to be attracted to technology and it's not going to be able to stop and think about how maybe I should go ahead and review my social studies so I can do well on the test tomorrow. So parents are in a position in which they're having to do a lot of that like prefrontal lobe thinking for their kids because they're just not equipped to be able to handle it themselves. And parents are really stressed right now. Comparing the social concerns versus educational concerns. I think everybody is in agreement that online learning is not going to replace what you're getting from face-to-face learning. Do you have a concern one over the other of what kids are facing socially right now, as opposed to educationally having to try to catch up? Well, I think the benefit of the educational thing is all the kids are in the same boat. They're all missing about the same amount of time. And although some kids are going to regress farther than other kids because of how they learn, in general, everybody's in that same boat, right? So they're all going to come back in. There's going to be some gaps from this last quarter of school. And teachers are going to, I feel very, very confident the teachers are going to be able to accommodate what it is that kids need. Socially, there can be so much variability in how kids are experiencing the world. 
Some kids have a bunch of siblings at home and they're still sharing and they're talking and they're getting affection and having to manage conflict and other kids, whether it's because they don't have siblings or they're just in an environment that's different. I mean, no, you know, no, no judgment there. Everybody's family is so, so different, but they don't have the same exposure with socialization. And some kids have started off with more proficiency with their socialization. So it's, it's not going to be as stressful for them to go without. But I think that if parents really have to choose between, okay, what do I prioritize? It's going to be the kid's emotional and social well-being because without that, it's going to be very difficult for them to acclimate back into the school environment. Which would also presumably affect how well they can acclimate. I have to ask something else that you talked about with siblings because for my kids, it seems like the sibling issues, we'll say, are just more and more prevalent, obviously, the more time they're spending together. I assume that's pretty normal, but do you have any suggestions for parents having to manage the multiple kids in the house and how they're interacting with each other when they're not necessarily interacting with their friends of a similar age? Yeah, for some siblings, especially siblings that had a high conflict relationship before this, some of those sibling relationships have improved because they've taken away all the other options and they're just left with each other. And they're like, oh, you know, you're actually not that bad. But for, <laughs> for siblings that generally, you know, get along, and by that I, I don't mean they never fight, but they have just kind of that typical sibling rivalry, they're getting super tired of each other. And also think about if you're a parent who is either home, you're working from home, or if you do go out of the house, you're less likely to have the kids go with you, right? Because you don't want them to be going into grocery stores and things like that. So a lot of times kids are getting less one-on-one -on -one time with their parents. So one of the suggestions I have is for parents to make sure to still provide those opportunities to have one-on-one -on -one time. Because a lot of the one-on-one -on -one time I spend with my kids is driving them places. And you have this 20 minutes or this half an hour in the car and they're sitting next to you and they're not facing you. So they are a little less filtered in what they're talking about. And they might not realize it as, oh, I spent time with my mom or dad, but they really are. And now during quarantine, some of those things we've just completely removed and everybody's in the house all the time. It seems like we're here forever. So there's like this passing of time that happens and you it's hard to know which which day it is, and there isn't always a, a structure of a schedule, but it is really important that kids have some alone time, that their, their alone time, or whether it's their bedroom, is respected, and they have that time with the parents still individually. I will say, not quite in the same way that you're describing, but something I've noticed whenever I put my kids to bed, we have a talk about your day session, and when they are at daycare, they're telling me things that I didn't actually see <laughs> during the day. So it gives them a moment to verbalize what happened and can give me some of the highlights. Those sessions are definitely a lot shorter right now because I'm seeing them all the time. So <laughs> I actually even start that session with, oh, who did you see today? Well, the answer is me. <laughs> Every mm -hmm. single day, it's yeah. been me. So I've seen a little bit of that interruption a little bit differently than what you're mentioning for in the car time, but it, it does manifest itself in what your schedule has been for sure. Stepping away from COVID a little bit, what are some things people should be looking for that would be warning signs that your child has anxiety issues? And obviously, I assume that's very different in younger kids as opposed to older kids. So maybe we can start with parents with younger kids? Yeah, that's a really great question. In younger kids, a lot of times we see quicker to cry, more clingy to parents, more temper outbursts. These kids are struggling to emotionally regulate. So it can feel like, gosh, we're walking around on eggshells. You know, we go to offer our kids something and they act like, you know, you committed a crime or bedtime, they start to show that they're fearful or they're clingy or they're having a hard time relaxing and either going to sleep or staying asleep. Sometimes we see some disruption in 
in food intake. Sometimes we hear a lot more about physical complaints like my stomach hurts, I have a headache, you know, my knee is bothering me. And that will be a sign that they're struggling with anxiety too. So with little kids, they it can be hard for them to really note what they're feeling internally. And we're just looking for signs as parents. We're just looking for places that their behavior has changed, especially that emotional regulation piece. In older kids with anxiety, oftentimes we see it take the form of irritability. So these are kids who become much more touchy, like like sensitive, a little more, you know, sassy or sarcastic, quick to have their feelings hurt, quick to feel something's unfair. Notice if a parent paid more attention to a sibling than to them, and it might just be their perception. It might not even be reality. So that irritability piece is pretty significant with older kids. And a lot of times parents will react to their kid's snarky tone, and it can be harder for them to see that it's coming from a place of anxiety. So you'll hear parents be like, oh, they have such a bad attitude. And they're tempted to, to scold them or yell at them or punish them. And sometimes that's appropriate. But sometimes they need parents to really slow things down and have a conversation that is a little bit more reflective of what's going on internally. And I think, too, is there can be a misconception that anxiety is always triggered by something. Like you'll talk to a parent, they'll be like, they don't have anything to be anxious about. Like school is going well. Our family's healthy. We all enjoy each other's, you know, we have, we have common interests. We're financially stable. Like what do they have to be anxious about? But the thing is with anxiety or depression is there isn't always a trigger. Sometimes it's just your brain sending faulty messages and those messages are telling us to panic about something. And it's not always going to be helpful to look for some magical trigger to explain it. If you find that it's not that magical trigger, is it really open communication is the primary thing to focus on? Or are there other actions that should be taken in those instances? Depending on how severe it is, sometimes it can be really important to get support from a mental health professional because anxiety tends to beget anxiety. Like once you get into a pattern of having really anxious thoughts or having your your body really react in an anxious way to just regular everyday stimuli, it's not going to be something necessarily that mom and dad are going to be able to support kids in retraining their body to not react that way. But also making sure that kids feel really heard, that you focus on what their emotion is. I'll give you an example. The other day I was talking to a client and their child this was a, a teenager and mom asked the child to go into the pizza store, put on his mask, go into the store and go ahead and grab the pizza like it's already been paid for. And he just didn't want to go. So she's getting frustrated. She feels really disrespected. She feels like, gosh, I've done everything for you all day long or all week long. And I'm just asking you to run in and pick up the pizza and you won't. And then when we looked into it a little further, he was really struggling with two things. One, was anxiety over over germs. And two, he's a kid with really significant sensory concerns. And so putting the mask on and feeling the heat of his breath and feeling it looped around his ears and worrying about touching the door or somebody talking to him and him not being able to speak clearly through the mask, like he just didn't have enough practice with the mask. And then having the sensory response on top of it was really stressful. So he just sort of froze and just refused. And his mom took it really personally. She took it as a sign of disrespect versus, okay, he's having a moment of anxiety and he needs us to like stop, reflect, figure out, you know, what coping needs to be used right now and then be able to push through in order to be functional in that moment. Historically speaking, do the issues of anxiety seem more prevalent than they have been in the past? I, I feel like what I've read there's certainly suggestions of yes. And again, I think some of that goes to technology or maybe other things, maybe even school becoming a bigger pressure. Do you find that the external issues that are bombarding kids uh, has made anxiety a bigger issue? Or is it that it's just now being more recognized? It was always there, but it's more defined now. I think amongst my colleagues and what I've read in the research is I think we all are in agreement that the amount of anxiety that kids are experiencing is 
intensifying. And there's various explanations for why that might be. One of them, of course, being the prevalence of technology and social media. And also, like you said, school pressures, social pressures. We just live in, in, in a different world. I mean, there's parts of our world that are so much safer, right? Because we just know more science-wise and we have more protections and things like that. But then also there's parts of our world that feels a lot more scary right now, whether you look at COVID or you look at sex trafficking or the dangers of vaping and things like that. And so there's just a lot of pressure on kids to develop an identity as they go through their teenage years and be able to make decisions before they're actually physiologically an adult, right? You're supposed to be making these decisions by the age of 18 of, do you want to go to college and what might you want to study and how are you going to provide financially for this college experience, whatever it is. And there, there just legitimately is a lot of pressures on them. But plus we see that anxiety is something that's sort of contagious. If you have family members who struggle with anxiety, if you're around friends who are very, you know, focused on school or really intensely competitive with sports, that can bleed into how kids understand the world and how they respond. So it's it's a pretty complicated issue. And let's go back to the different ages and maybe how anxiety would manifest itself. Do you have any general guidelines of zero to five? They're probably not going to be able to verbalize what's going on, but it may be the tantrums and things as opposed to leading up to small child into the tween years and then into teenagers. What are some of those guidelines maybe as someone's child ages that they should expect them to be able to verbalize uh, anxiety? Well, I think definitely when you're in the preschool years, it's unlikely that kids are going to be able to express what they're feeling and have any insight into their behavior. And as far as kids as they age and they get through elementary school, sometimes it really depends on the language that teachers and parents have taught the child. I mean, in homes where there's a lot of focus on social and emotional development, you know, you're reading books about it, you're watching you know, television shows and you're willing to discuss the characters, whether you as parents are able to express moments of anxiety in a really like age appropriate way. I mean, those are kids who are going to have an ability to verbalize it a lot earlier than a family who doesn't spend time educating kids about what that looks like. And so there's kids as young as first grade that I've been able to talk really directly about anxiety with. And then there's kids who are into middle school who really struggle to understand those concepts because it's kind of abstract. Just today, I worked with a child who is moving into second grade. And we talked about your brain and we talked about the messages you send your brain. And if you're sending your brain anxious, worried messages, you know, and you have those thoughts, then you're going to have the feelings and the behavior that correspond with those thoughts. And he understood it. I mean, it was harder for him to translate it into like a new thought to take that information and shape it for himself. I think today was like the third time we met. So we're going to practice that. Whereas an older child, you might be able to explain those things and they can start to apply it to their life earlier because they're older and they understand some more abstract thought. But it really can depend on the culture of your home and your child's school as far as when they're the most responsive to their own body and their own thoughts. So if nothing else, probably the constant is communication as much as you can over anything else, correct? Absolutely. And really teaching kids how to recognize and name emotions. There's sometimes when kids are in middle school and the main words they have for feeling words is like mad, sad, and glad, or mad, sad, and happy. And everything that they describe is basically using those words versus being able to teach them words like discouraged, frustrated, disappointed. Those are other words that are going to be more nuanced. And if kids grow up in an environment where their feelings are identified and there's some like discernment there, then that will help them be more reflective. And sometimes with parents, like parents won't even label their emotions. You'll hear a dad just talk 
about their child and their problem behavior and say, they say over and over that it just makes them mad. And it's like, well, really, if you really look at this, like you're really worried, you're disappointed, you're frustrated, you're discouraged. And those are words that more thoroughly describe the emotions they have about their child struggling, but they're not even using those words for themselves, let alone role modeling it for their child. That is a really good point. Of course, as you're saying that, I'm trying to go through some of the dialogues I have with my kids to know how many different uh, emotions that we talk through. Luckily, a few that you used as examples, I can check off the list that <laughs> I've talked about. So I think that's a good homework assignment for people to to think about as they interact with their kids. What are the different types of emotions and how do they get defined when you bring up one, especially in the moment, because, hey, nothing works better than an example, right? So if you can help the child verbalize it when it's happening, then it probably will stick so you can read some of those nuances later in life. Well, and also having them identify what's happening with their body when they feel these things, right? Right. So maybe you're sweating, maybe you're crying, maybe your hands are shaking, maybe your stomach hurts, whatever it is. And so having kids not only be able to like, like it's a big leap to go from an event and then them completely knowing what the emotion is. Whereas if they're able to be like, what's my body doing right now? My body is yelling. My body is, my hands are clenched. I'm, I just hit my brother or whatever it is. And then from there, they might be able to take the step to then identify the emotion. So it's, it's a process and it takes practice. So kids get better and better at it when we coach them through it and we role model it ourselves. Just like anything, the more practice you get, the better you get at it. So we've talked a little bit about technology and social media and of course have identified it from the standpoint of possibly creating anxiety for kids, maybe kicking off this part of our conversation, what are the pros of social media and technology for children? And then, of course, what should you be looking out for that can be cons? There are pros to technology for sure. I'm, I'm pretty pro-technology myself, even though I do so much public speaking and writing about this topic, the fact is it's here and it's here to stay. And what we want to do is we want kids to get the benefits of technology and be able to counteract the things that are more negative. So benefits. Benefits are, you know, connecting with other people, whether it's making plans to go to a movie or getting help with a homework assignment or having a FaceTime call with grandma who lives across the country. Like the, that is a huge benefit. We get so much information from technology. I mean, information is literally at our fingertips all the time. And there's also this like globalization that happens. You know, when I can type in the name of an African country and learn about what language they speak or what religion they practice and bring the world a little bit closer for myself and my children. Like we all benefit from that. And it's really important that we make sure that we're using technology for those positive connections. The things that are more concerning, of course, is that technology can end up replacing other healthy activities. It can replace physical exercise, eye contact, affection, conversation, the opportunity to have more empathy. One of the things we all have experienced is somebody behind the keyboard saying something negative, even if we've just read it, even if it hasn't been directed to, our, to us specifically, but we see how people have this false sense of anonymity and they're not their best selves on the internet. And kids... I mean, we, we look out and we see the internet and we see how, you know, terrible sometimes adults are. But then you take a kid brain and have all their social pressures and their um, underdeveloped conflict resolution skills. And then if they're, they're poorly equipped, right, to handle that. So we have to do a lot of support when it comes to them being able to monitor their time, being able to understand how to keep themselves safe because obviously there's some significant safety issues online, and them making sure they have a moderate use where they still have the opportunity to learn from real life things, like not just computer, but go out in the world and interact and have those social connections, as well as the exercise and getting sleep too. Like that's one of the things that has really been like a collateral damage aspect of technology and social media 
is a lot of kids are staying up late or getting up early to have access. And it's really impacting their their sleep acquisition. To your point about empathy and expecting kids to be able to handle what presumably adults have a hard time handling, I think of sessions that I've had in the office that says, if you can speak to somebody face-to-face, do it. If you can't do face-to-face, pick up the phone. And if for some reason you can't do that, then resort to email for the exact reasons you just mentioned, which is don't put in an email what you're not willing to say to somebody's face. And then just like you said with the video games and what they're designed to do, well, hey, these social media technologies are designed to keep kids on and we're having training sessions about <laughs> how to be empathetic and relate to people as adults. So if adults can't quite get it right and need to constantly be reminded, certainly kids do. And certainly there needs to be some sort of parameters around it. And there's a lot of times parents really don't know how to do that. It's They're very well-intentioned. And sometimes parents get overwhelmed at how there's always new trends. I mean, most of the time their kids are kind of smarter than them in technology. Their kids surpass their parents' knowledge of it pretty quickly. And so parents can have this idea of like, oh, I need to give up. Like they feel helpless, like they they, they might as well give up because there's no way they're going to be able to stay one step ahead of their kids. And the thing is, there is some truth to that, right? But kids who know that their parents are keeping an eye out for them and monitoring them and asking questions and peeking at their stuff are going to make better decisions than those who have parents who don't. I mean, you think of the times you're out in public in the grocery store and your kid does something awful and you, like there's a whole bunch of people there. Like you do parent a little differently, right? With your four-year-old than when you're at home alone with them, you might be quicker to say, you know, to have a, a rougher tone or give a consequence or whatever it is. So kids make better decisions when they know that there's a pretty decent chance that their parents are going to oversee their behavior. So there's there's a lot of benefit of parents staying super involved, even if they don't quite know all the information out there. And I work really hard as a clinician to make information as accessible as possible for parents. Like some of the public speaking events that I do, I have an online mini course for parents. Um, I try to post videos and things like that on my website to make sure that parents get some information because that even a little bit of information can be can go a long way in supporting their kids. Going again from a timeline from young young kids into teen years, what recommendations do you have for when a little bit of screen time is okay and then when it's okay for them to have social media emphasis on monitored <laughs> social media and so on? Well, in the online mini course that I provide, I have, I, I express what the like on paper recommendations are, right? Like, okay, you know, 18 months to three years old, you might be having some minimal high quality TV time. Between the age of three and let's say third grade, you might say, okay, an hour of close up screen time, right? So that means like a device they're holding up to their face and maybe some TV time. And then by the time you go through the age groups and you get to high school, you're allowing them to have more independence and but still maintaining supervision and making sure there's a balance between schoolwork and face-to-face family time and job and extracurricular activities. But one thing I talk about in a in a less formal way with parents is to look at the overall scope of their day or their week. So an example. So if my son, who's a middle schooler, if he gets up on a Saturday morning and he's in a decent mood and he's sitting there eating his breakfast with a parent and he's playing with the dog and then he goes and he plays video games for 45 minutes and then he goes ahead and jumps into his baseball uniform, he goes and plays baseball game, and then he's out with the dog again, and he's playing basketball with the neighbor. And then he comes in, and let's just say it's 6, 30, 7 o'clock, and he wants to go bonkers for three hours on his video game. Well, he's had a really full, interactive, balanced day. He's gotten exercise. He, he slept in a decent amount. He's had shared meals and eye contact and conversations and interacted in a really productive way in family life. So that three hours or maybe even four hours that he has with technology in the context of that day really isn't as big of a deal. 
But if you have that same kid who gets up, has a terrible attitude with his parents and just gripes at them throughout breakfast, and then he lays on the couch and is super annoyed when you ask him to go ahead and, you know, find his his baseball cleats or whatever, and you ask him to walk the dog and he goes out there and he throws the ball like one time. And okay, so he drags himself to practice and maybe he's got a, a, an, a, an attitude while he's there. I mean, taking a kid in that circumstance and then having them go and get on technology for four hours later on in the day, like those are two different significantly different scenarios. And so parents, I really want to encourage them, look look at how well your kid is doing generally. Are they a productive member of the family? Are they interactive and social? You know, are they generally helpful and kind? And if they are, they probably can handle a little more technology time. But if everything's a fight, they're super irritable, they have low frustration tolerance, they don't have emotional regulation, it's impacting their sleep. Maybe you're seeing some of those similar irritability with their friends, that's going to be a kid who's going to need quite a bit more supervision and support when it comes to technology and social media. And are all types of screen time created equal? Or in other words, I think of social media, TV, movies, and video games is how I sort of separate them. Should there be different amounts of time for those types or do the different types affect kids in different ways? And well, there is a significant difference between like high quality content and low quality content. So high quality content, you might see content that's more educationally valuable, making sure that it's age appropriate, that there's an end to it. One of the things that's really common with low quality content is how it goes from one to the next to the next, right? So think of YouTube videos that kids are watching where they just sit there and they zone out and they're in the YouTube haze and it goes from one video to the next and time passes, most of the time that's not high quality content. If it's content that's shared and discussed with a parent, that's going to be higher quality content. Lower quality content is content that has age inappropriate, like it's not age appropriate content. Maybe it has violence. Maybe it has a lot of um, sexually inappropriate content. It's the type of content that goes from one to the next to the next to the next. Like, so, so the short answer to your question is no, it's not all created equal. So if you can shape at least some of your kids' time online or in front of screens to be something that has more educational value and increases like a skill or is just more functional. I mean, having your kids spend time getting their assignments organized in Google Classroom is not at all the same as them zoning out on Fortnite videos on YouTube. So I think it's really important that parents teach their kids to have some balance. I know for me, there's times I go on and I'm just like looking at fun things on Instagram. And then there's other times where I'm reading news articles. And so, or I'm doing something online related to my work. And of course, those are not equal experiences. And how about devices? Is there a cutoff for a child having their own device? Like we mentioned, there is definitely consideration for being able to monitor. And how does that translate over to whether or not a kid can be trusted with their own technology? Well, a lot of it is making sure that parents are not giving their kids privileges on devices that their kids can't handle. Like if your kid is repeatedly breaking rules and misusing that device, like they're telling you that they're not ready for it. They're telling you that they can't control their impulses with it, or they're super curious about a topic and are not going to the appropriate adult. And with families, with parents, they often are deciding when kids get devices based on life circumstances. So parents who are divorced, those are kids who classically get devices earlier because the other parent who's not residing with that child at that time wants to be able to access their child. Kids who have to stay home alone, kids who are involved in extracurricular activity that involve complicated like drop off and pick up, things like that. Those are going to be kids who who parents are going to be really interested in having them get technology so they can benefit from the communication from their kids. There's other kids who are given technology, they don't have the oversight, and it's just sort of a fun, entertaining thing. And then it's more likely to be misused. So I tell parents, like, if you're not in a space where you're able to get familiar with the technology that's out there, 
that can enhance your supervision of your child, then your family's not really ready for it. So, you know, we think about how much money and and that parents will invest in technology, whether it's for an iPad or a laptop or a cell phone or a security system or whatever it is for their family. And how much decision making, like there's a lot of time that might, might go into what device we get for our family, but we need to have the corresponding preparation too, where parents are getting informed about what it takes for their child to be safe and implementing those things from the beginning so that it's n- they're not waiting for kids to make missteps and then trying to correct it. I always wonder if parents will ever catch up in the technology cat and mouse game. Like, will technology ever get to a point where parents are savvy enough that, and it doesn't change? (laughs) Probably not. Kids are always more invested, right? They're more invested in getting whatever need it is that they're trying to get met. Like, they're pretty motivated to figure out a way to get Snapchat, even though mom didn't say that you know, and we just as as adults, we have freedom on technology, so we don't always think like them. One thing I hear a lot, like some of my clients have one of the parents are in the technology world. They're like in IT or some sort of security, and they'll say, "Well, I know all about this. Like I do this at work." And I was like, "You're not going to work and keeping kids people off Snapchat." You know what I mean? Like you're trying to prevent some other company from like stealing your ideas or whatever. Like it's not the same type of security. And so some of the education I do with the families that I work with is just teaching them about features of different social media platforms. So at least be informed about them so you can decide if it's right for your kid or it isn't. But sometimes I think the biggest struggle with parents is that they have a false sense of what their own knowledge base is about a particular form of technology. And if you're not actively using it yourself, or kind of in the mindset of like what sneaky thing you can do, you're going to really have to put some effort into that. So there's a lot of Facebook groups and things that are really supportive for parents. And I'll probably have to tell you some of them later because I'd have to look at them. But there's some really great communities on Facebook for parents who are just trying to stay one step ahead. And I mean, thousands of parents belong to them and they ask questions and people offer answers. I know I've looked in them several times and I have an above average knowledge of technology given that I have teenagers and and the work that I do. A lot of my questions, of course, have been around different age ranges. What about differences between boys and girls in particular, social media is what I've read a lot of where there can be differences in how it affects girls differently than it affects boys. Well, obviously, there's different roles in f- is as far as like how sexuality is expressed and whether it's trying to elicit sex or inappropriate videos and things like that between kids who are who are interested in each other romantically or whatever. Um, So that's something we definitely view just as a society, girls versus boys differently. But I have to be honest with you, I I do see a lot of the same impacts on impact on kids, whether they're boys and girls. I see a similar consequence of that depression, of anxiety. If kids are generally socially isolated, technology tends to deepen that for them. If kids are really proficient socially, then technology tends to enhance that. It's sort of like whatever direction you're leaning, technology continues to tip you in that direction. But I do see that there's a real difference in how kids handle themselves on technology based on like their degree of impulse control. So if a child has symptoms of ADHD, if they are just kids who struggle to have self-control, whether it's emotional regulation or just like not engaging in impulsive behavior, then those are kids who often can quickly make missteps online. They can post something inappropriate. They can say a bullying comment. They can send an inappropriate picture. And so to me, it doesn't necessarily fall on like a gender domain. It seems to be more those internal characteristics of, of kids as individuals. So I think it goes back to the communication and understanding the tendencies of the particular child, uh, which <laughs> further emphasizes, I think, one of the themes we're really hitting that 
that communication for parents, make sure they are in tune with their child so that if something does seem to be a little off, they're able to respond to it at that time. Um, you mentioned divorce and that being a consideration for why a kid may have certain technology and so on. I know this is another area that you really focus on. So what should be the playbook, if you will, if a married couple finds themselves in the position of being separated and divorced and the best way to handle that for their kids? Again, with acknowledgement that I'm sure it's different depending on the age of their children. Well, there's definitely some characteristics that are pretty globally accepted no matter what age your kids are. So one of those is trying to help kids maintain their routine. So if they're used to being able to go to baseball practice, you want to have them be able to continue doing that even if they're at dad's house this weekend or regardless if they're at mom's house this weekend. So being able to continue their time with friends and extracurricular activities is going to be really important. So that's one thing. Another thing to consider is making sure that adult problems stay in the adult world and not have kids be pulled into that. So missteps I'll see parents make is one parent telling their child how much child support is. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm giving this much for child support, and so your other parent should be using that money appropriately. Or they will discuss the actual factors related to the divorce. And, and a lot of that information should just be kept from kids. It just shouldn't fall into their domain at all. And the focus should just be on keeping their life routined and peaceful. So I see, I see that. That's the second thing, adults bringing kids into adult problems. And then the third thing is parents having open conflict with each other in front of the kids. And kids feel that tension. They see it. It's very, very distressing. They oftentimes feel like I have to pick sides and they will get defensive of a particular parent. It might be the same parent all the time, or it could be flipping back and forth. It's extraordinarily stressful. So I encourage parents to find another outlet for that, whether it's in your lawyer's office, or you go and see a therapist or a parent coach, or you just have meetings when the kids are away, then fine, do that. But there'll be parents who are you know, arguing with each other out in the driveway or at their kid's soccer game, and kids just crumble under that. That is so, so upsetting for them. I would assume that that last piece can apply to a married couple as well, not just a couple that's getting ready to separate and are divorced. Well, it's different because with a married couple who are intending on staying married, there's often time and opportunity to see the conflict resolution part, like whether it's a kiss and make up or an apology or just something blows over. But in a case of a separation or divorce, I mean, these are oftentimes people who, even if they don't hate each other, are feeling hateful thoughts towards that other person. And so the child just can end up feeling very hopeless and helpless in that situation. So parents don't need to hide all conflict with kids all the time, but they do need to not bring it into a separation and divorce because of the fact that we, they don't typically see a conclusion, at least not a positive conclusion. So it is it is different. I mean, you know, there should never be a time where parents are being abusive to each other, openly disrespectful, using really adult words and concepts around the kids like that doesn't need to happen ever. But a kid seeing their parents snipe at each other or argue about something and then work through it. I think that's a great healthy thing for kids to see. That's a great distinction to see the life cycle, if you will, of a of a disagreement. Well, are you able to share any worst case scenarios that you've have come across your desk that is an absolutely don't do this beyond the three tips that you mentioned? I do. This is a population I work pretty closely with. I have a certain portion of cases that I have on my caseload of parents who are going through not only a separation or divorce, but a high conflict separation or divorce, because those are definitely different categories of families. I think probably the most detrimental thing I see is when parents will say something hateful about the other parent and they'll use passive aggressive language. They will drag other relatives in it. For example, their grandmother is now saying, hateful things about the the co-parent. 
that is really stressful for kids and they have a lot of bitterness. And those are things that they'll bring up over and over, like years later. So sort of using the kids as a weapon. There's always a parent of the two parents. There's always a parent who can tolerate their kids being more uncomfortable than the other parent, right? There's always a parent who will hit stop because they can't watch their kids suffer. And once the parent who who's more comfortable with seeing their kids in pain recognizes that, they will push and push and push because they will 100% get their way if they just make the kids suffer enough so that the other parent caves. And that is a really awful scenario because there's no winning. And so I see that it's it's not as rare as I'd like to say. It's It's actually pretty common. I wonder if using one of the examples you mentioned earlier about how somebody acts in public for their parenting versus in private, and maybe for the parent that is having those negative tendencies, if they view an audience (laughs) around them when they're interacting with their kids, maybe it would have a better effect? Well, I often serve as that audience because... I form a relationship with both parents and the kids. So kids are going to tell me if they saw mom and dad having a hateful argument in the driveway and parents will share with me a hateful email that was sent or an ugly text or, you know, I'll see communication between lawyers and things. And so sometimes them know, you know, the parents knowing that I'm a mental health clinician who is there to support their kids and their family as they're going through a separation or divorce, like sometimes it causes them to make better decisions because no one wants to be the parent who's told by the mental health clinician that they're contributing to their kids struggling. So oftentimes just having me present and involved in the family's life really serves that purpose. So sometimes parents be like, oh, he's, he's just, you know, willing to meet with you during these counseling sessions because he wants to look like a good dad. He's like faking it. And I'm like, well, you know, sometimes faking it gives you good practice to actually develop some new habits. So if that's the case, the kids still can win. (laughs) You know, like they can still have a parent who increases their functionality, even if they originally started down that path for a less than pure reason. So, you know, but when, when parents know like, okay, you know, I'm here to help support them in their parenting choices, and I notice something that's happening that's unhealthy, you know, they know it's going to be noted in my clinical notes that somebody is not complying with recommendations. And if they're going through a separation or divorce and you're looking for custody time, nobody wants those notes subpoenaed later on. I guess we're saying the term fake it till you make it can apply. Yeah, they see like they'll they might initially start off making different choices because I've recommended it. But then oftentimes they can see the benefits of it because their life goes more smoothly when their kids are doing better. Their relationship with their kids might be enhanced, and that's easier on everybody. So sometimes starting out, they get that practice, they see the benefits, and then they they really are invested in continuing it. Parents out there, keep practicing. <laughs> of course, no parent is perfect, but the practice makes you better and better along the way. Well, Tara, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. A lot of good information, I think, for folks to be able to use in either enhancing their relationship with their kids or just being aware of some warning signs that could come up. Before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and give your contact information, maybe where people can find you on social media, um, where they can grab copies of your book? Absolutely. The best way to find me online is to go to my website, which is www.drtaraegan.com. And there you can find links to my book, You can find links to my podcast, which is launching next week called One Day You'll Thank Me. And also you can access the online mini course I have called Managing Your Family's Technology and Social Media. And that is a course specifically designed for parents who are struggling with teaching their kids moderation with technology and social media. It's a great resource and it's it's really parent friendly and gives practical suggestions to guide parents as they go through this process with their kids. So yeah, I'm absolutely available. If people feel like they have any questions, they can direct them to you or they can go ahead and contact me 
via email and just let me know what questions they might have and I'm happy to answer them. Absolutely. And we will put all of your information into the show notes for people that might have questions. So again, I appreciate you being on the show and we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to suburbanfolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.